Lord in heaven, we are so thankful for your grace, for your mercy, for what you've done for us through Jesus. We praise you and give you great glory, and we ask now, God, that you would direct our hearts to your word, that you would impress upon us the magnificence of your grace. Stir within us, God, a spirit of gratitude and awe, humility and worship as we meditate on the glorious wonders of your love towards us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn this morning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our series there this morning. But before we jump into the text, just consider for a moment, um, do you guys ever find yourself looking for something, some sort of small talk to connect with people that are complete and utter strangers? You know, you're standing in, the, in line maybe at the gas station or, you know, you bump into someone and you're just looking for something, anything because you accidentally made eye contact and now it feels like you need to say something. Have you noticed how complaining is so often the common language of our culture? It's so easy to immediately identify with someone just by complaining. Man, how about that cold weather? Aren't you glad that's over? That was horrible. You know, things like that. <clears throat> Maybe the construction in Lawrence, Kansas. Maybe tax season. You know, whatever it may be. We all find it so easy to instantly complain about things we don't like, and it's an easy way for us to strike up a conversation. But you know what? As we think about how easy it is for us to slip into a spirit of complaining, consider that as those who have received God's grace, gratitude is to be our calling card. According to Scripture, gratitude is a necessary aspect of walking in a manner worthy of of the Lord. Two weeks ago, last time we were in Colossians, we saw that in verse 10, well, starting in verse 9, Paul prays for these people that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Why? Verse 10, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There's a kind of living, a kind of thinking, a kind of speaking that honors God, and there's a kind that doesn't. And gratitude is to be a hallmark of those who walk worthy of the Lord. Paul prays this for the believers at Colossae. That those who have received so much grace from God would offer him the appropriate expression of thanks. As we've been looking at this extended prayer by Paul, we've seen that Paul is thankful for them. He's thankful to God for what God is doing in these people. And he's praying that what God has done in them, what God has done for them, would produce great gratitude. That they would join him in being thankful to God. I want you to look in our text this morning in light of Paul's prayer that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We see several descriptions of what this worthy walk looks like. In verse 10, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. In verse 11, this walk requires strength from God. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then the final description of this walk that is worthy of God, we find in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The central idea for our text this morning is this. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord requires gratitude to our gracious Father. Walking in a manner worthy of God requires gratitude, gratitude to our gracious Father. It is God's will that you and I be thankful. 
And this idea of gratitude implies something, doesn't it? For you and I to be thankful for something implies that we have received it. Not something we produced, not something we built, not something we did, something we received. And it has been received as a gift. Grace is an undeserved gift, not something we have earned, not something that is owed to us. And Paul knows that this experience of grace leads necessarily to gratitude. And anything less than gratitude in your heart and my heart to God for this grace, anything less than that is dishonoring to him, dishonoring to our gracious Father, not a fitting response to his grace. This will not be the last time Paul brings up the necessity of gratitude in this letter. We'll see it in chapter 2, verse 7, in chapter 3, verse 15 and 17. But what's amazing here is that Paul doesn't just prescribe thankfulness and gratitude to us. He actually provokes it. He provokes it by rehearsing the marvelous work of our gracious Father in saving us. He says, listen, you need to be thankful, but you have so much to be thankful for. Let me tell you, let me remind you about what our God has done in saving us. We have so much to be thankful for. I want to share with you this morning four aspects, three aspects rather, of God's gracious work of salvation that call for gratitude. We'll be looking at three reasons to give thanks this morning. And first, we find in verse 12, we give thanks to, to the God who has qualified us. We give thanks to the God who has qualified us. We give thanks to God, first of all, because, verse 12, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has done something profound He has qualified us. This implies something, doesn't it? That formally, we must have been unqualified. I mean, if God had to make us qualified, then it makes total sense. At one point, we were not qualified. We did not measure up. We did not meet the requirements. How were we unqualified? Well, we can just kind of briefly skim through the scriptures and see that, according to Ephesians 2, we were formerly spiritually dead and children of wrath unqualified to belong to God's family and receive this inheritance. We were sinful. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 tells us who we were. Titus 3 reminds us where we came from when we were hostile in mind and in deed, hating the truth. Romans 3 reminds us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were sinful. We were enemies of God, hostile in need of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that God in Christ is reconciling us to himself, meaning that we were unreconciled before. Biblically, we understand that we are lacking the righteousness God requires. I love what the psalm says. Who will ascend into God's holy hill? Who is it that can be in the presence of the Lord? The one who has a clean heart. Well, that disqualifies all of us, doesn't it? We're lacking the righteousness God requires. We are spiritually and morally bankrupt because of our sinfulness. We are owing a debt that we cannot pay. We are guilty and deserving of a penalty that must be dealt out. We are legally guilty and condemned, completely unqualified to receive God's blessings. But if you are a believer, get this, the good news is that God has changed your status. From unqualified to qualified. This qualification includes many things, some of which we've just referred to. But specifically here, I think Paul is pointing out two aspects of this qualification. The first is adoption. To share in the inheritance of the saints 
It means, first of all, we need to be adopted into God's family. I mean, think about that. Uh, do any of you guys have me written into your will? That'd be kind of nice if you did. I wouldn't complain. But I would be willing to bet some money that I'm not in any of your wills because I'm not the son of any of you people in here. I'm not your child. So I don't have a claim on your estate when you pass away. For us to receive the inheritance of the saints in light means we need to be part of the family if we're going to be eligible for this inheritance. And that means we need to be adopted. The inheritance is for sons and daughters. It's not for strangers. It's not for enemies. It's for the children of God. And God has done this for all who believe. I love John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, to all who did receive him, to all who received Christ through faith, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There are some today who will argue that all people are children of God and he's everyone's father. But biblically, we understand that for God to be our father, we have to be adopted. We have to believe on Jesus Christ in order to be welcomed into his family. Notice how Paul refers here to God as the father. We give thanks to not just God, though he is, not just our Lord, though he is, not just our master, not just our savior. We give thanks to the father, the father who has qualified us. While the first person of the Godhead is often referred to as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that even in chapter 1 verse 3 here in Colossians, he is also the father of all who believe. In chapter 2, or chapter 1 verse 2, Paul has already wished them grace and peace from God, our father. A relationship of love and commitment and blessing and protection and care He is our Father. And Paul is pointing out to us that this is a great, great privilege. Because of our sin, we once only could relate to God as a judge. We were destined to be sent away from him into everlasting punishment in hell. But God has qualified us by adopting us into his family. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Same ideas in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Paul tells us, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that personal, affectionate name where we are able to call God our Father. Paul continues in verse 16 of Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, get this, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we are children of God, then we have a share in the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God who rightfully earned that full inheritance. He now shares it with all who are part of God's family. We have this new status as children of God through faith in Christ. God is our father. And as sons and daughters, we are now eligible to receive this inheritance. We have a new status. We are qualified. What a reason to give thanks. Give thanks, Paul says, to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But not only does God qualify us by adoption, but I think there's a second angle that that Paul is kind of getting at here. He also not only adopts us, but he also makes us holy. 
He makes us holy. Say, where are you getting that? Well, notice what he says. Qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Who are the saints? The saints here simply means the holy ones. Those who have been set apart by God and made clean, made holy through the blood of Jesus. So this is a description not just of a select few. Not just some old famous people who did a lot of good deeds. And they're the saints and then everybody else is just normal Christians. No, Paul uses this word saints to describe all who have been made holy through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, he's already addressed these people as saints. Look up in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So the saints here is holy ones. And Paul says, you are among those who have been set apart by God and made clean. You see, the thing that, that separated us from God, the thing that made us unqualified was what? It was our sin. That was the thing that stood between us and God. The main problem that disqualified us was our uncleanness. But God makes us holy. Although these people were formerly pagan Gentiles who worshipped idols and committed immorality, God has made them holy. And though we were formerly lost, rebellious, sinful, unclean, God makes us holy through faith in Jesus Christ. These people have been adopted and made holy qualified to share in the inheritance. Think about just for a moment where you were before Christ. Think about for a moment who you would be today if not for Christ. Perhaps some of you were saved at a young age. Consider if God had never been at work in your heart. If he had let you go your own way and pursue your sin, where would you be? We would be unworthy, wouldn't we? But God makes us worthy. We would be enemies of God, but he has made us sons. We would be filthy because of our sin, but he makes us clean. We would be spiritually bankrupt, but he has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God adopts us, but he also makes us holy. I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's that word inheritance again. Same idea. Paul writes, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul says that's who you used to be. But what happened, Paul? He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That means made holy. You were justified. That means declared not guilty. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what God has done for us, qualifying us by adopting us and making us saints, making us holy, washing us and cleansing us, something that you and I could never do for ourselves. God has done it for us. And this, Paul says, is a reason to be grateful It's a reason to be grateful. But what has he qualified us for? Look back at verse 12. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light. We have spiritual blessings now 
And we have a share in the eternal reward that is to come in the future. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. An inheritance, Peter says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is truly amazing that there is blessing and reward, a kingdom that is coming, glory to be shared with Christ that is being kept for us, and we get to receive that one day because of God's mercy. Do we deserve this inheritance? No, we do not. Do we deserve a place among the saints? No, we do not. Have we earned our share in the reward? No, we haven't. The inheritance is ours. This position as sons, this possession of the reward is ours all because God qualified us. He made us heirs. He made us holy. This, friends, is grace. This is God's undeserved gift to all who believe in Jesus. And Paul says this is a great reason for thankfulness. We give thanks to our gracious Father because he has qualified us. But secondly, we give thanks to the God who not only qualified us, we give thanks to the God who delivered us and transferred us. We see this in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, that word deliver here, it doesn't mean like, like just deliver a pizza, right? So you might call up Pizza Hut, Papa John's, whatever your favorite thing is, right? Have you kids ever get excited when the doorbell rings and the pizza's there? Or maybe when dad goes and picks it up. Maybe dad's your delivery guy. That's what we usually do. We don't ever want to pay the delivery guy. This does not mean that kind of deliver, just bringing something. There's more to it than that. This is the deliverance of rescue. God has rescued us. Rescued us from what? Look in verse 13. Delivered or rescued us from the domain of darkness. Domain here means authority. It means power. Before salvation, before God rescues a sinner, before you and I were saved, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't say no to our flesh. We were subjects of Satan, part of his empire. We were blind to the truth. We were completely lost, groping about in the darkness. The imagery of darkness here brings to might the power of Satan, the wickedness of sin, the emptiness, and the finality of death. This is the domain of darkness, and that's where we were. Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a cosmic war going on. And apart from Christ, we are prisoners of war. We are slaves to sin and death and Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says, In their case, referring to unbelievers... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan rules over those who are lost, and he's keeping them in bondage by blinding their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Many of us are brokenhearted for people we love, people that don't believe in Jesus. They've rejected him. They don't think that they need him. 
their problems are multiple. Not only do they not want Jesus, they actually can't pursue him. They can't see him. They can't understand the good news. Their heart is hard and darkened, and on top of that, the enemy is blinding them to the truth. But you know what Jesus does? He comes and he sets captives free. Jesus comes to plunder Satan's domain and rescue those he loves from this domain of darkness. As, Jesus, as Paul rather recounts how Jesus commissioned him to go preach the gospel, in Acts 28, Paul says this, that Jesus had said, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the ministry of the gospel. Through the preaching of the cross, Jesus is liberating captives. People can turn from darkness to light when Jesus comes to rescue them. If darkness refers to sin and death and lies and falsehood and the power of Satan, we have come to share in the inheritance of the saints. In what? In the light. We are in the light. The light refers to what is true. The light refers to what is pure. The light refers to life. The light is all that Jesus Christ himself embodies. Just as God in the Old Testament rescued his people from Egypt and led them out of slavery, so now Jesus, like a new Moses, is rescuing us and leading us out of bondage and captivity, leading us to freedom, leading us to life, leading us into the light. And Matthew chapter 4 says that the ministry of Jesus fulfills the words of Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness... Sounds like us, doesn't it? Have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow and death, on them light has dawned. It is in seeing Christ and trusting in him that we are rescued from the darkness. John 1.4 says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says confidently that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's talking about creation, when God said, let there be light, and the sun and the stars instantly came into being, and all the light that emanated from them, he says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know what's a miracle? It was a miracle when God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light, and instantly there was light. But there are little miracles going on every day today in the world. When God speaks life into a dead sinner's heart. When God penetrates the darkness and says, let there be light, and a person's eyes are open to behold the glory of Christ and to believe. That's a miracle. The creation of the universe is a miracle, and the creation of new life, the giving of eyes that can see, that is a miracle. Paul says, God has done that miracle for you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You know, darkness had its hour of supposed triumph when Jesus was crucified, but the resurrection declares the eternal victory of Jesus over darkness. I love John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've been delivered, rescued from the authority and power of darkness through Jesus Christ. What a miracle of grace 
that we ought to give thanks for? How wrong would it be for us to take that for granted as if we set ourselves free? As if it didn't cost Jesus his life to rescue us from darkness? As if we had the power ourselves to break the chains and walk away? As if we had the power ourselves to give, to give ourselves the ability to see? Paul says, give thanks to the God who has rescued us. We are delivered. But, we're, but get this, there's more. Not only are we delivered from the domain of darkness, but Paul says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, God doesn't just set us free from slavery, make us alive, break the shackles, and then leave us to wander around as homeless people. No, he brings us into his kingdom. We're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This refers to Jesus Christ, God's anointed, the Messiah, who came to rescue God's people and who will one day reign over all the nations of the earth. We live even now as citizens of that coming kingdom. We have a place. We have an inheritance. We belong to the kingdom of his son. And this is a great privilege. God has brought us into his family as heirs and into his kingdom as citizens. This is God's grace. The darkness has not been eradicated just yet. We see it all around us. We even wrestle with it in our own lives. But we have been set free from its power, and we now are invited to walk as children of light, breathing the clean and free air of God's grace. And this is a cause for gratitude. It calls for worship and for thanksgiving and for praise. We give thanks to the God who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But there's a third reason Paul gives us to give thanks. Third, we give thanks to the God who not only qualified us, who not only rescued and transferred us into his kingdom, but to the God who redeemed us to the God who redeemed us. Look in verse 14. Speaking of this beloved son, speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. The word for redemption here really has the idea of, of a ransom, a price that has been paid to set us free. You could even say emancipation. The price paid to set a slave or a prisoner of war free. So if the rescue is the act of saving us, redemption refers to the price that has been paid to bring it about. And this is exactly what Jesus has done by no less than the shedding of his own blood. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this is why he came. Jesus came into the world to redeem sinners. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? Do you know it? Do you remember it? As a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came, to give his life, to ransom us, to redeem us. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, as we sang this morning, paid it all, and he did so by the shedding of his blood. Now, we have to ask the question, who was this debt paid to? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, somebody needs to be paid. Jesus paid it all. 
to who? He, he didn't owe us anything. He wasn't paying us. Was it Satan? Did Satan have some sort of claim that God had, had to pay him in order to set us free? No, that's not true either, although some may say that. The debt was actually paid by the Son of God to God. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God meant that we owed a debt. God's justice had to be satisfied. David in the Old Testament realized that the ultimate offense of all sin is against God himself. And that therefore God's judgment against sin is just. In Psalm 51.4 he confesses against you, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew that he had violated the holiness of God. That he deserved just condemnation from God. And guess what? You too are a sinner, and so am I. All of us have broken God's law. All of us have failed to do that which God has required of us, which means all of us are guilty. We all owe a debt. There has to be a price paid for our crimes against a holy God. And that means that forgiveness is our most desperate need, isn't it? But Paul says, you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Your debt is paid. How can God justify one who is guilty without being unjust? How can God give us forgiveness of sins, as we see in verse 14, and not somehow compromise his justice? Some people think that salvation means God, for the people that he likes, just says, oh, let's not worry about those mistakes. We'll just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. God never pretends like any sin never happened. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the universe either has been or will be fully punished. The price must be paid. But in his grace, God sent Jesus to pay that price for us so that your sins and my sins, if you're a believer, have been nailed to the cross. We see this later in Colossians in chapter 2. He refers to the debt that we owe and to, uh, to the, the receipt, the bill for our sin. And look in verse 14. It says, or in verse 13 rather, it says at the end of verse 13, he's forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By pretending they never happened? By sweeping them under the rug? By just kind of winking at our sin? Saying, well, it's not as bad as other people's and you know, I'll just overlook at this once. No, he has given us forgiveness for our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every lustful thought that you have ever entertained, every lie that you have ever told, every proud thought that you've allowed to be in your mind, every disrespectful word spoken to your parents, Every critical attitude you've had towards someone. Every impulse of selfishness. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians says that God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. The prophet Isaiah writes that our iniquities have been laid upon him. The reason that Jesus cried out in agony on the cross was not just because of the nails in his hands and his feet, not just because of the thorns that were pressed down into his skull, not just because of the lacerations, the open wounds from the scourging. 
The reason he cried out in agony was because he was bearing the weight, the burning, white-hot wrath of God for your sin and my sin. This is what it costs for you and I to be forgiven. And Paul says, God has done this for you. You can be forgiven. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven. And this is something we give thanks for. Mercy has been extended to us because justice has been discharged upon Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. In Romans 3, verse 25, it says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word that means that the wrath of God, his his justice was satisfied. It's spent. There's no more left for us because Jesus absorbed all of it. Jesus is a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says God never winks or smiles at any sins and the reason he can overlook ours is because Jesus dealt with it at the cross. He has propitiated the wrath of God. He has satisfied the Father. God can show patience and forgiveness towards us without compromising his justice because Christ suffered and died in our place to bear our penalty to pay our debts. 1 John 4.10 says that this is love. This, Jesus doing that for you and me, is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul understands that the forgiveness of sins ought to produce the deepest measure of gratitude in our hearts. If you go to Luke chapter 7, we don't have time to look at that story. There's a beautiful story of a woman who weeps and washes the feet of Jesus with her tears. Some other people are offended by that. Jesus tells a story about a man who had a massive debt and it was forgiven and a man who had a small debt that was forgiven. Jesus said, who do you think was more appreciative? The one who had a greater debt or the one who had smaller debt? The point is clear. Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Paul says this is to be our response of gratitude to our gracious Father who has redeemed us. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not that we can earn redemption, Not that we can make up for our sins, that wouldn't be good news at all, but we have it. It is done. Jesus said, it is finished. All that is left for us to do is to receive this forgiveness through faith. God's not asking you to jump through a million hoops to somehow atone for your sins. He sent Jesus to do that, and we simply trust in him. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord requires gratitude to our gracious Father, gratitude for his work in qualifying us. He has made us children. He has made us holy. Gratitude to the Father for rescuing us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. Gratitude to our gracious Father for redeeming us. In Christ, we have forgiveness and redemption. So let me ask you this morning, do you find it difficult to be grateful? I know we usually talk about gratitude around Thanksgiving, but this applies all the time. Are you someone that others would describe as a grateful, a thankful person? Or are you someone who tends to be dismissive of the riches of God's grace? 
Everything that we've talked about this morning is something that ought to be regularly present in our hearts and in our minds that causes us to not only feel grateful, but to express that gratitude in our actions and in our words. But are you someone who is apathetic towards all that God has done for us in pouring out his grace to save? Do you find it easy to complain? Do you find it easy to be discontent because there is something in this world that you want that you do not have? Do you find it easy for yourself to feel unloved because your spouse is imperfect or because you don't have that spouse that you wish you had? Because you don't have the kinds of friends that you think everyone else must enjoy? Do you nurture those feelings of self-pity and feel deprived? As if God is holding good things back from you. I want you to consider this morning the glorious grace of the gospel. One of my favorite hymns that we sing here in one of the later verses says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. We have the spirit of God. Think what father's smiles are thine. The Father loves us. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? To repine means to complain, to mourn, to be sad, to feel sorry for yourself. And the hymn writer echoes the same logic of Paul here and says, Consider everything that we've been given in Christ. How can we not rejoice and express Gratitude. That doesn't mean there's never tears. That doesn't mean there's no pain. What it means is that we understand the profound riches of the gospel and what has been given to us in Jesus. How can we complain when we've been given such great freedom in Christ? When we do, you know what we're like? We're like the children of Israel who were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They're brought out into the wilderness and God is providing for their needs every day. And you know what they say? We are sick and tired of this manna, this bread that God's giving us. They start complaining. They start complaining, grumbling. We do the same thing. It's as if we have forgotten our great exodus, that God has led us out of spiritual bondage into freedom when we complain, when we're not grateful. But when you rehearse such gracious blessings of salvation, when you rest in these truths, Rejoice in these truths. It will produce gratitude. And this gratitude will have an effect on your life. Just a couple effects of gratitude as we prepare to wrap up here. I think number one, one of the impacts that gratitude will have on you, if you really get this, if you really embrace what Paul's talking about here, number one, gratitude for grace will kill your pride. It kills pride. Consider the power of these truths to battle against pride. It's so humbling, isn't it? It's a humbling doctrine to know that Jesus paid it all and we didn't contribute except for the sin that made it necessary. It's a humbling doctrine to know that we are a needy people who are debtors to grace. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul, after reminding us where we came from, that not many of us were wise or noble or powerful, but God delights to save the neediest and the most unlikely and the reason is this, 1 Corinthians 1, 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boasting should always and only be in Christ. When we understand who we were, where we came from, what God has done for us, there's no room left for boasting in ourselves. None at all. 
The one who is proud has simply forgotten where he came from. The one who is arrogant has forgotten that it is God who qualifies, who delivers, who rescues, that it is Christ who redeems and forgives. If you really get this, one of the signs that you're getting it and that you're growing in grace, growing in gratitude, will be that this truth will be taking an axe to the root of the pride in your life. But secondly, gratitude for grace will also not just kill pride, it also protects us from condemnation. As I was talking about sin earlier, where we were, what we deserve, who we are, some of you were feeling the weight of that. And we should, but you can't stay there. You can't stay there. When Satan tempts us to despair, another one of my favorite songs, and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look, don't we? And we see him there who made an end of all our sin. When we're reminded of our shame and our guilt and our unworthiness, we look to Christ and we see the one who has paid the debt for all our sin. We have a hope before the throne, a risen lamb who shed his blood for us. We have been redeemed. The work of God described in this text is complete. It's not a process. It's done, paid in full, an instantaneous event. And who is Satan to tell us otherwise? And who are we to sit around feeling as if Jesus is not enough? May that kind of unbelief in the sufficiency of Christ's saving work never be present in our hearts. We should believe this and rejoice in this. And when we do, we are set free from condemnation. We are no longer burdened by guilt and shame. We are free to fully confess and acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner. I can be completely honest about that. I don't have to hide it. But I have a Savior whose grace is greater than my sin. The gospel sets us free from condemnation and guilt. Third, this gratitude for grace will also enable joy. It enables joy even despite the worst of earthly circumstances. Really, this is perspective. When you understand what God has done for us in Christ, we recognize we have something that is better than anything else in the world. So if we never get those good things or if we lose them, it still pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. There's nothing in the world that can change our status as adopted into his family, as joint heirs with Jesus. There's nothing in the world that can rob us of our eternal possession, that can somehow break into God's kingdom and steal what is going to be ours. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures there. Because there's no moths, there's no rust, there's no corruption, and no thieves can break in and steal. That's where our treasure is, and nothing can change that. Gratitude for the gospel and for God's grace enables joy no matter what we're facing in this life. Because our greatest need has been met, and our future is secure. Whatever whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that is painful, that is disappointing, that is exhausting... It's possible to have joy in the midst of those trials. Like I said earlier, this doesn't mean we don't feel the pain. It doesn't mean we have to pretend like those things aren't there. It means that in the middle of the storm, as one of my favorite pastors describes it, we have this ballast in the bottom of the boat so the waves can't knock us over. It's there with us, stabilizing us, guiding us. We can have joy even in the midst of trials because we know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Gratitude does all of this. It kills pride. 
It frees us from condemnation. It gives us joy in the midst of our circumstances. And finally, gratitude for God's grace produces worship. It produces worship. I think this speaks for itself. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. I'll just read 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God saved us that we might rejoice and praise the one who saved us. I want to speak to some of you in the room this morning for whom all of this may not yet apply. You see, you can only be grateful for all this if it's yours. You can only be grateful for all that God has done if you have experienced it. And some of you, to be very direct, have not been qualified. You have not been adopted into God's family. You have not been made holy. Some of you are still in the domain of darkness. Some of you are still blinded by sin, blinded by Satan. Some of you are still enslaved. Some of you are still spiritually dead. You've not been rescued or transferred into his kingdom. You've not yet been redeemed. You are still in your sins and in need of God's forgiveness. But the good news is that today, all of that can change. All of that can change. The solution for your deepest need, the rescue that you need, the forgiveness that you need, is, has all been provided already in Christ. You must simply respond to God's offer of grace by turning from your sin, repenting of your rebellion against God, and simply placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Lean your full weight on Christ and trust him to save you. The Bible promises that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And at that point, your voice can be added to the chorus of those who are celebrating the grace of God, those who have confidence in Christ, those who have so much to be thankful for. Will you look to Christ today and receive his gift of grace? What is keeping you from bowing the knee to Jesus? And trusting in him, allowing him to rescue you and save you. If you'll simply recognize your need and see his willingness to power and power to save and place your faith in him, he will redeem you today. And then you can add your voice to ours as we give thanks to our gracious father for his marvelous work of salvation.